You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. This is the literal history of innovation and progress globally, is that new things create more new things in a way that is logical when you look back on it. There's a kind of zigzag logic to it. And it's really, really hard to see that stuff. Right. It, it's the it's the living with uncertainty we started with, which which you need to do. You need there's a yeah. there's always that that river of uncertainty you need to wade through to get to the other side. Boom. Poetic description. <laughs> it was very nice. And so and so the question is, I think for for interview, how can you communicate the gain? How can you show people the gain instead of saying, trust us, there is gain? And so how do we wrestle with? And this is the thing that I find really interesting. How do we wrestle with the good that comes from terrible? Because this is ultimately the story of innovation. I mean, the Black Death and coronavirus to, to you know a lesser but still significant extent is a story of something new and disruptive coming along, it causing pain, but in the end causing a lot of uh, innovation and progress. Oh my God, I'm going to take notes because I love this. So there's, there's a couple of things that I learned from this whole archive of podcasts and your view of exploring pessimism. A, it's kind of like a history of innovation. So some massive problem is solved, but it's not like then all of a sudden the world gets better. Let's see what happens at all these critical points where society is about to change. There's a lot of opinions that we kind of take for granted later and there's skepticism and then there's techniques for communicating past the skepticism. And then also your Pessimist Archive shows how things have unexpected consequences that could be very positive. Why are people so pessimistic all the time? Everyone is afraid, not everyone, but a lot of people are just afraid of change, afraid of innovation. And I get it. We like the status quo because anything other than what's normal gives us a great uncertainty. And we as humans don't like living in uncertainty. And right now, just in the situation we're in with lockdowns and the economy and, and the virus, there's huge uncertainty. So I talked to Jason Pfeiffer, who has the podcast, The Pessimist Archive. And I was amazed at all the things that in the past people have been pessimistic about. So when the dance, the waltz started in the early 1800s, people were really upset. People were against this. People thought this would ruin your health, this, this one dance. Or, or pinball machines. People thought this was horrible. The elevator, people thought you would get brain fever or that murders would increase because of the invention of the elevator. Everything from mirrors to teddy bears to birthday parties to refrigerators. Why were people's instincts 
to be pessimistic about things we now view as everyday. And what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this pessimism? How can we make more rational decisions and look at the world with a little bit more optimism, a little bit more rational thinking, and think in terms of abundance rather than scarcity, particularly during these important times. So please welcome my guest for the day, Jason Pfeiffer. He has the podcast Hush Money, he has the podcast Pessimists Archive, and he's the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. And um, uh, when do you think you're going to come back to New York? That's a really good... I, You know, I just don't know the answer to that. I, I've been saying... This is how we thought about it when we left. I said, I will come back when it's safe. But I don't know what that means or what that looks like. I, I think... I think yeah, I was talking about this with a friend, um, you know, a friend who... Our, our kids are friends, uh, back, who's back in Brooklyn. And and I realized, you know, I think that what... I think that what I'm saying is... Um, I'll come back when the kids can go somewhere. You know, like like when daycare opens back up and school or summer camp or something so that we feel safe sending the kids out. Because once the kids are out of the house, I can lead a semi-normal life. Um, but with the kids in the apartment, I, it's not possible. So I, I think I'd rather be here. So I, don't, I just don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's a couple months. I don't know if it's a year. I, I, I have no I idea. I mean, it's, so, it's, it's great not knowing and being... I don't know how much that stresses you out, but I think the biggest lesson during this time is learning how to live with some uncertainty. And I and I think I will say, I'll just speaking for me, I think I'm guilty of at first not wanting to live with so much uncertainty. So I felt like I was just pouring through all the data on coronavirus, every research study, all the science. Cause I, I've been yeah. a scientist in the past. I know how to read through the data and I have my brother-in-law is the top uh, immunologist at Imperial College. So I was, I, I know people on the Federal Reserve. So I was getting really comfortable with every angle of the data, but there was just too mm. much data and it was always changing. So the, so I had to finally just say, look, nobody knows shit <laughs> yeah. and I'm not going to figure it out. And just living with that uncertainty is is hard, but, but it's been a good lesson. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that is a really good lesson. It's, it's, you know, it's important to know. Um, it's important to know that you can't know. Yeah, uh, like which is a hard thing for people, um, particularly who have been in positions where they're you know able to control a lot of their environment. Um, but it is the only actual truth, right? I mean, like at at any time, anything can change, and plans can be interrupted, and things can be wiped out, and being able to digest that possibility and knowing that you can still go forward is a very useful thing. Um, I've, I, I, I've never been too concerned with feeling like in total control. I've, I've like my, I think back on my own life and I'm like, the thing that I did best was be able to go with the flow. Um, because it led me to amazing new things. But uh, so when this started, when this came, I had a friend who, was raising the alarm about this in January. It was like freaking out about this in January and sending very alarming messages to my wife and I about how we should take all our money out of the market and we should stockpile food. And we thought he was crazy. We thought he had gone down the YouTube rabbit hole, which he had, but the wild thing is that he had 
it had led him to the actual correct answer. And uh, and yet, I, I was thinking back then, and and I thought about it when all of what he predicted came true. I thought, well, what am I supposed to do? Except for react to it. I can't do anything. Right. I can't stop this. And it's hard to pull all of your money out of the market on a, a statement like that because, you know, A, the market as it does, unless you're overly leveraged where a downturn can wipe you out, uh, the market does what it does. And then eventually, as it's always done, we'll go back to all-time highs. It's hard to to time it. Yeah, It's very stressful to try and time that. So, you know, just avoiding looking at the market during these times when there's also six trillion in stimulus about to hit the economy that's a, a, you know you don't have to react to it like and i hear where your friends coming from i didn't think the virus was coming to the us i'll be honest but i saw because of wuhan i saw that supply chains were closing down they were closing all their factories so it doesn't mm. affect me but i called all my friends who let's say they're in the dressmaking business and they required yeah. fabrics from china or they were in some other business that required supply chain from China, which turns out every industry did. We, we didn't realize no industry had a plan B. And I said, listen, <laughs> factories are shutting down. This is gonna get scary for the economy um, because it's never happened before. If your supply chain's down for six weeks, every business is out of business. And mm -hmm. so I did try to advise people, load up on the goods you normally would just buy you know, every month. And maybe one out of 10 listened to me and survived and the rest are stressed but again you know who knows now there's stimulus there's money dropping from the sky we'll see what ha happens as the economy starts to slowly open up but uh but i for what i'm excited we've had this time to now talk finally about the pessimist archive <laughs> yeah right I, I i appreciate you know it's it's funny this is feels like um I was saying to my wife yesterday, I feel like I feel like I've created this thing that's floated around for the last couple of years and now has something to attach itself to. Or like this is it's been a it's been an exploration of why people resist change and what the value of change is. And now here's this moment of just unbelievable change. Um, so um, at first I was like, is this relevant? And then I realized this is it couldn't be more. Yeah, relevant. thank so you I'm, for stealing my intro from me because I was going to say that oh, like that. Well, say say it, say it. We don't. We, are we are we rolling here? You can. We've, you can, we've, I was just we've been rolling for a while. So okay. <laughs> uh, so so I agree with you. I think right now there is so much anger. If you say X Y Z might be a good thing in this crisis, there's at least fifty million people who are going to say you're an idiot, and they'll they'll say it in a much harsher terms than that. Like everyone's just yelling at each other from from the biggest intellectuals and people I've respected the most to total anonymous strangers. Everyone is just yelling at everybody and Twitter and mm -hmm. Facebook raking it in on all these arguments. But you're right. Like in any, in any situation, whether it's an invention or a crisis like this, anything that's going to potentially change the world, there's going to be a lot of people who are afraid of a change to the status quo. And whether that change is good or bad it's it's the uncertainty first that scares people like like you you have these um podcasts you know so it's the pessimist archive and you have these these podcasts about like the elevator and how people were scared to death of how the elevator was going to change the society or or refrigeration mm -hmm. or mirrors or comic books or novels and 
And the reality is it's, it's the fear that is killing people, not the item itself. But why did you start, why did you start this podcast? And, and by the way, again, the, the benefits of listening to this is not only the amazing historical information you get on these obscure facets of society. Like no one would say, oh my God, the invention of the elevator, big deal. And yet that changed the entire Everything. planet. It, it created right. urban society. Like you, you couldn't yes. have a skyscraper without an elevator. That's right. You couldn't have coronavirus without elevators. So we're all touching <laughs> the buttons and we're all working, you know, a million people are working together in these vertical cities called skyscrapers. So that's how we get densely packed together. But um, what made you start this podcast? Yeah, thanks, James. So, uh, yeah, so some context here. I mean, Pessimists Archive is a, it's, I think of it as a history show about why people resist new things. I'm really interested in how we repeat our fears across time that the same things that people said about self or say about selfies today were said functionally about the mirror a hundred plus years ago that the, the things that people say or, or or the camera by the way too or the camera absolutely mm -hmm. i mean the the mirror and the camera and um uh, weirdly actually the postal service were things that radically altered our understanding of vanity uh, and and yet you know and yet we haven't actually progressed past this point where we can accept that it's okay to um, consider ourselves and, and that's not sinful in this way in which it was it was directly thought of as sinful uh, and like the you know going back to the early 1800s but but anyway I, I go down all these rabbit holes so the point is that um, everything that we say today every fear that we have about some new innovation what was previously expressed about something that today is such a part of the fabric of our lives that we don't even imagine that it was possibly threatening. And if you look around, literally wherever you are right now, everything that you're looking at was new. Things that seem like they couldn't possibly have had a starting point because they just seem so logical were new birthday parties were the idea of celebrating our birth was a pretty is a pretty new thing the idea of going to a store and picking something off a shelf is a pretty new thing and all of this stuff freaked people out and i want to understand the reasons why they did that because i think if you if you can understand the patterns of resistance to change, then you can start to see the solutions to getting people to embrace change. I mean, the elevator, for example, offers a couple of really good ones, which we can jump into. And um, and let, now, let, oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was going to say, and, and I mean, the importance to 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 all this and to this message now, and to like understanding this stuff now, is that we are in a moment of of radical forced change for everybody at the same time. And that's that's scary and like let's let's of course acknowledge the the the, the very real uh tragedies, personal tragedies that this will create and devastation and uh um and and economic hardship, but it's also and I've spent a lot of time talking to people about this, it's also creating immense opportunities for innovation and for change. And I think that you can look back 20 years from now and the world that we'll be living in will be improved and will be so full of things that we take for granted that we forget that they came out of this moment. In the same way that some of the very foundations of the way that we understand the world and interact with the world came out of the Black Death. These are things that when there are radical moments of change, it, it is painful. Um, and yet the great challenge that we have as people who live through it is to figure out how to adapt to it and find the opportunity in it. it it's so true. And yet, you know, like for instance, you know, we're, we're, we both live in New York city. You're outside of New York city right now. Yeah. 
like yesterday I was walking around for the first time in about two or three weeks. And I just wanted to go outside and get a coffee and see the sunlight because it's healthy to be outside and get vitamin yeah. D from the sun and to go outside in the morning. So your body gets used to morning sunlight in the morning so you can sleep well and, and so on. So I go outside and as soon as I get out there, some woman yells at me, you have to wear a mask. And mm. I didn't agree or disagree. Apparently the rule was changed that day where everybody walking around have, has to wear a mask, you know, and I felt bad, but again, like I didn't know this person. She was 10 feet away from me. I wasn't bothering anybody. I wasn't being infectious or anything. And, uh, you know, and I, and I was doing social distancing, but just people can't handle uncertainty and there's, and I don't blame her and I don't blame anybody. There's so much uncertainty right now. I mean, it's maybe the most in human history in terms of the average effect on all 7 billion people in the species. And, you know, we're, we're going through this time. And like you say, I do think ultimately good things will come out of this and you have to have faith in that. And there's a lot of reasons in part because of work like you've done creating such an amazing series of podcasts, uh, uh, analyzing all these prior pessimistic situations that, that changed the world. And so, uh, how do we pick a couple and, and discuss what your inspiration was and how it changed the world and why people were pessimistic. Let's, let's start with the elevator. I, I, I actually didn't yeah. know. I read about the, the, the innovation of the elevator. I think it was in Steven Johnson's book, um, six innovations that changed the world. He talks about air conditioning, making it possible mm -hmm. to do manufacturing in the South, South and the elevator, making it possible for, you know, people to work, uh, in, in skyscrapers. So it allowed for, uh, much more productivity in, in cities, but what, why were people against elevators? When were they invented? Yeah, so they were, uh, yeah, well they were, uh, you know, this is the, the, it's funny. Whenever I talk about pessimist archive, the one thing that I cannot retain in my head are the exact dates That's of okay. things I wish that I could. Facts are stupid, but, um, ideas are smart. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, so people were afraid of the elevator for a couple different reasons, uh, across the evolution of the elevator. And, um, and some of them are very logical. Like it's, it's worth, this is something that I have to force myself to, to constantly do because of the, the way that I look at the world, which is to say change is good, uh, is to understand that, you know, sometimes change is very reasonably terrifying and that's worth remembering and not throwing people under the bus for it. So True. for example, with the elevator, the, if you walk into an elevator now, I assume a lot of people are not doing that, but um, you know, the next time you do walk into an elevator, if you can remember, you'll see the name Otis, almost certainly. Uh, Otis Elevators. It's the it's the primary elevator manufacturer. And that is an actual guy. His last name was Otis. And the reason that he dominated the elevator world was because prior to him, elevators were largely suspended by like rope. And they would go up and down, but the rope would snap and the things would plummet and people would die all the time. And so you had this interesting idea. It was, it was a really wonderful concept, uh, a thing that could move people up and down. You can radically transform the way that we live because of that. But it wasn't safe. And so it was reasonably feared. And then Otis came along and created the safety elevator. He would do this, this presentation that would shock people where um, they would raise the elevator uh, he had this kind of open elevator shaft, right? So you could see what was going on. And he would uh, raise the elevator and then he um and then he would he would yell, cut the rope. 
And then his assistant would cut the rope and the elevator platform that he was standing on would start plummeting and then it would stop because he had created these um, these kind of jaws that would open up as soon as the thing fell and it would, it would stop the elevator from falling. It was the safety elevator. That was the first major innovation. And once that came out, uh, it really did radically transform cities and the way that we live. I mean, you know, I love thinking about the ripple effects of innovation, yes. not all of which are, you know, not all of which I, you know, are, are kind of immediately positive or positive at all. Um, think about this, for example, before elevators, the rich lived on the bottom floors of buildings and the poor lived on the top because it was easier to walk into the lower floors of the building. No, it's true. Like I'll just say with, with my building, which was built in, I think, 1870 something, uh, the the top apartments, which normally you would think of in modern buildings as the penthouse and the most lucrative, right. they're actually extremely tiny, small rooms, yeah. small doors, small everything. Because like you say, that's where, where you know, there was a, a, you know, whatever you think about income inequality, there was certainly huge income inequality 120 years ago where these people were treated like, you know, whatever they were put them in the, the maids and servants in the smallest possible rooms on the, on the end that was hard to walk up. That's right. It took them forever to get up there. And it, and it was the hottest, it was the hottest rooms too. Yes, absolutely. And so here comes the elevator and now suddenly the rich say, oh no, wait a second. I want to be on the top because the views are really nice. And it radically reoriented how people lived. Uh, but here's the thing that I find most interesting about the elevator. This is kind of skipping ahead in the history, but but it gives you, I think, a really good sense of ways in which to approach the communication of an embrace of change. So we have the adoption of the elevator. Uh, it goes through all sorts of funny, there are all sorts of funny cultural fights. For example, there's this like decades-long uh, cultural battle over whether or not men are supposed to take their hats off in elevators when there are women present. Because the question is, is an elevator a public or a private space? You know, if, if a woman walked into your living room, you would take, you would take your hat. Well, you probably wouldn't be wearing your hat to begin with. You would take your hat off. Um, but if you pass her on the street, you don't have to take your hat off. So what is the elevator? Is it public or private? Also, elevators were treated like living rooms. So there were couches. People would come and they would sit down. It's really funny. So, uh, but then we get to the point where the elevator technology has advanced so that you don't need an actual person to move the up and, elevator up and down. Or like there used to be elevator assistants, and those are people who literally physically moved the elevator. They would either pull a rope or they would like turn a crank or something. And eventually there were buttons, and then eventually the, the automatic elevator was invented. You could just walk in, press a button, and the elevator would move all by itself. And that was so terrifying for people. There were these amazing newspaper columns in which people were talking about, what does the elevator think? Because it seemed to move on its own. And do you want to submit yourself to a machine that moves on its own? And, you know, you have to think, and it's reasonable to be concerned about this if you, if you imagine the time. There is no other experience. And I can't think of one today. Maybe, maybe you can, but I can't. There's no other experience where you walk into something, it is windowless, and it moves on its own. Right. Like I, you know, I always wonder this, it's almost like science fiction. Like you go into like, like, let's say you had never even heard of an elevator before. Imagine going into a room, you're in there with a bunch of people and you're all just standing, not talking to each other. The door closes yeah. for a few seconds and then it opens and you're an entire, you're in an entirely you're in a different world. space. You might be, how the hell did you it might happen? be in a different, 
year. It might be a time machine. You might be in a different <laughs> planet. It might be a dream of a, a vehicle to travel through dreams. Like it, it would be amazing to you. Right. That's right. And you know, and it's, and it's so weird. I, I'm like playing that out as you, as you're saying it, you can feel that you're moving, but if you're not familiar with the elevator, you can't really understand where you're moving. Right. It just, it's just moving somehow. Right. It's, it's terrifying. You're, you're submitting yourself to the will of this machine and you have absolutely no bearings on where you are. And so people would not get inside of these things. And, um, and now two things, two things were happening. Now, now we're kind of, we're splitting into two different ways that people, um, resist change. One of them is that it, it, oftentimes incumbent industries are threatened by something new and they will kick up fear about that thing. So in this case, the elevator operator industry understood that they were, this was a existential threat to all these jobs. And so they started spreading this is all like these- the automation fear. It's exactly the automation fear. It's exactly the automation fear. The automation fear that we have now has been repeated so many times throughout history. And so what they, and their campaigns were fascinating. You had, um, um, you had, they were, they were making all these claims about how murder rates will go up because of automatic elevators. The idea being that, well, now the elevator is unattended which means that um, murderers can attack you in the elevator. And these stories would get out into the press and then people would be very afraid of getting into an, un, an unoperated elevator. Uh, and, and this is something that you just, you just see over and over again. Now, the elevator operators played their hand poorly because they also kept going on strike. And when they would go on strike, the elevators would stop working and uh, you would be stuck in your office and people really hated that. Uh, and so those strikes ended up moving a lot of people towards the embrace of automatic well, elevators. But the big, Also, I, I would imagine yeah. when the elevator operators went on strike, the people who continued to operate, you know, who, who let's say office workers who figured out how to operate the elevator on their own saw that there was no increase in murder. Oh, that's a really good point. You know, I, I, I would, I would imagine so. Although I think a lot of people just couldn't access the elevator. There are all these great stories in the in the paper. Like you look at the New York Times and like I, I think this is, might have been the forties, fifties, uh, where um, uh, where elevator operators go on strike. Everyone is just stuck in their buildings, and they're all like yelling out the window at the elevator operators. <laughs> they, they can't go anywhere. Also, by the way, it's really funny to think about when the elevators were were only moved by an operator those operators were not there 24 hours a day. So the elevator would shut down. So you would have to get out of your office before the last elevator took off. That's kind funny. of like catching the last train, yeah. which is really, so it's like a different way of thinking about it. So, but the, but here's the, here's the, so then, then you've got the fear of technology, the fear of change, the fear of stepping inside an elevator that is going to move on its own. And what the elevator industry did to solve this problem is so smart and also so insightful, and I've seen versions of it uh, in other innovations. And here it was. They put a female voice in that says, going up, going down, floor one, floor two. Well, you're, we've all heard that. We've probably been in old elevators that still do that. The idea was, and I think of it as building a bridge of familiarity. So you take something that people are comfortable with and you create a new version of it that applies to the new experience. So now you're walking in and it's not just an opera. It's not just like a machine that you can't understand. It has a voice and that voice is a soothing human voice. And that helped people become comfortable with the elevator in the same way that, uh, you know, many decades prior when people were resistant to the car, 
And they would, you know, if early, early, uh, they were called horseless carriages, early horseless carriage drivers would drive down the street and people would throw rocks at them and they would yell, get a horse at them. And they just, they hated these cars. They called them the devil wagon. And one of the big things that the car industry did, and this is before Henry Ford, this lays the foundation for Henry Ford. The thing that the industry did that was so smart was they realized they were talking about this invention all wrong. They were talking about it as a replacement to the horse. But people liked their horse. They didn't want to get rid of their horse. You were trying to, you were imposing something upon them and, and forcing them to get rid of the thing that they were comfortable with. And so they stopped talking about it as a replacement for a horse. And they started talking about it as a better horse. Hmm. And that's where you get the word horsepower from and why cars are named after horses. This was an attempt to bridge familiarity. So you take something that people are already comfortable with and you say, this isn't that different. It's just a better version of the thing you oh, already like. Oh my God. I'm going to take notes because I love this. So I never thought of this in terms of bridging, bridge familiarity. Uh, I guess it makes sense in terms of communicating an idea, but I never thought about it in the context of pessimism over innovation. And, 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 and by the way, to your point, often the people who invent some new great thing, they've been so kind of heads down creating their invention. They don't quite know. And they, and they see internally the benefits of it, but they're not necessarily the best communicators. So there, right. there's a lot of resistance initially in, in many cases, not every case, but, it, but in, in all of these cases that you talk about it, it, more cases than not. And, and, and just to, just to interrupt, there's, there's a case you, 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 that's sort of obvious, uh, but it's, and it's important now, but hand-washing. So, Hand, nobody knew that hand washing was important to reduce the spread of germs. And this doctor, Ignaz uh, Semmelweis in the 1840s, yeah. noticed that a lot of women in his hospital, he was a doctor, and he noticed that a lot of women giving childbirth were dying. And then he studied it and realized that doctors were going from the morgue where they were burying people who had just died to uh, give deliver birth without washing their hands in between. And those were the women who died, but he was so bad at communicating that, right. that everybody, 99.9% .9 of the experts of all the trained doctors in the world, they hated him and they refused to believe that washing your hands would save lives. And he ended up kind of, I believe, dying in a mental institution penniless. He did. Yeah. Yes. That's right. It's an, it's an amazing story. He, the only hospital in all of Europe that really took him up on his idea was the one that he worked at, which was in Vienna. And, and everybody else said, no, how could you, how could I, a trained doctor who has been doing this my whole life, possibly be the cause of all these people's deaths? And because he was so stubborn and, and basically treated it like, no, you idiots, you're killing people. They were totally resistant to this idea and he didn't communicate it properly. That's absolutely right. I mean, you can understand uh, the generational challenge here of telling people that um, that the way that they were trained and the way that they've operated for so long has actually been harmful. I mean, that is a, that is an immense thing to try to swallow, but he could have done it better. And, and the other lesson is is that the 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 experts aren't always right. You always have to, yeah. no matter what, you can't just say, "Well, he's the expert. I'm not. I'll just go with him." It's always useful to be a little, a tiny bit skeptical. Yeah. You know, you know what we were seeing a lot of this in just before the uh, before the world shut down. I mean, this is this feels like an irrelevant um, subject right now. But those scooters, the, those scooters that have just they were just you know one thousand scooters dumped in Minneapolis, uh, you know, by Lime and Bird, 
And um, I love those scooters. I mean, I've, I've used them. I yeah. find them to be exceptionally efficient and wonderful machines, but they were just tossed out there in this way that people felt like it was an imposition and they hadn't built the bridge of familiarity. They hadn't spent that time getting people to understand, you know, this is a this is a useful idea. They were just so convinced that they being the the creators of this, they were just so convinced that um, they had a superior product and a superior solution that if they just released it upon the world, people would instantly understand the value. And the thing is, people generally don't instantly understand the value. You have to bring them along. Yeah. And you have to bring them along in this not rational way, but like you said, having a female voice in the elevator or calling a car a better horse. I'm, I'm, I'm taking notes on this, you know, yeah. and uh, uh, that's such an important technique. I think you just added a, a new chapter to my book. <laughs> <laughs> so okay so what what but you know and people you were saying in your podcast people were getting yeah. were accusing elevator of causing brain fever like what like yeah. just they were pulling out all the stops like what was going on they were. Well, you know, I mean, that's a thing that we see oftentimes with transportation. It's very interesting. Um, there's a concern that we are not biologically up to the task of whatever technology we've surrounded ourselves with. So, yeah, so there was there was brain fever in elevators, but there was also um, homicidal tendencies in bicycles. The, the claim was that the revolution of the wheel would um would uh, was something that our brains couldn't actually comprehend. Um, cars too, people said, um, would make people homicidal. And then there's this fascinating thing that goes throughout history, in which um, we keep saying that a new technology will alter our faces. Have you ever seen that? You, there, there's actually a version of this today. If you go and and Google, you can you can find like Good Morning America talking about uh, smartphone face and tech neck. These are you so know, this tell is the, the idea that. that well, the idea is that because we're all looking down at our smartphones, our faces are going to start to droop. Uh, and uh, and if you go into the past, what you find are things like bicycle face. Uh, this was a this was a real thing. You would find this in medical literature at the time. This would be the late eighteen hundreds. Um, bicycle face was a condition. Uh, in which uh, the wind and sun uh, unnaturally being uh, thrust upon your face as you move with a bicycle would uh, stretch your face and harden your face. There was also fear of airplane face, um, radio face, telephone face. Uh, really, really interesting. And you know what? What? So what is what is this? Um, what is this? The answer that the best sense that I can make of it is that. You know, there's there's long been this belief, um, you know, incorrectly so, but you see it throughout literature, Humpback of Notre Dame, uh, for example, that um that our faces tell us uh, about the person. You know that that a uh, an ugly face is an ugly person, and a beautiful face is a wonderful person. And so I think that what happens is because we fear that technology will alter us. You know, I mean, we hear that all the time, even in modern discussions about technology. Yeah, look at, we, look know, at the say, 5G scare. That's right. That's exactly right. The 5G scare is a is a is a perfect example of a health scare and then um and then there's also the the kind of internal change which is 
you know, oh, you use smartphones all the time, and that means that you're not going to learn how to communicate properly with other people. You can't hold conversations, and kids are going to grow up without a sense of community. But these are all these are all these are all the premises that there's a fundamental change happening to us physically, emotionally, intellectually, and that we are not we are so fragile as creatures that once you introduce some new stimuli, something that even though we created it, we uh, we just can't handle it. Um, you can hear this all the time if you listen to a guy named Tristan Harris from the Center for Humane Technology. His whole thing is about how uh, technology is is radically uh, altering us in this in this way that we are not able to protect against. So you know, you think, well, okay, um, the person if a person is changed, then their face changes because the face is the representative of the of the person. I mean, so it's a real belief that that. That, that has been sort of long discredited. I mean, it used to be an actual scientific belief. Um, uh, uh, you know, late 1800s, uh, 1700s, people were getting arrested. Um, Darwin, Dar- Darwin, did you know this? This is, I mean, I'm kind of rambling here, but Dar- did you know that Darwin was, a, was, was almost not led on the boat that took him to the Galapagos Islands because the ship captain looked at his face and thought that he wouldn't be able to handle the trip? I did not this know is that. Like, yeah. So this is this is this is how deep this belief goes. And um That's fascinating. I got to write that down. And so too. you can understand that if if we're naturally incorrectly believing that that uh changes in ourselves are represented in our face, then you can you can understand how the fear that technology will change us would translate to the fear that it will change our face and uh or or our minds or something like that. And so you you see that all over the place. And so every time every time you hear that, I you should you should think about Darwin not being led onto the ship, right? Like every time. Well, once in a uh, 50 times say, it's going to be true. So for instance, when uh, Marie Curie discovered radioactive elements, they actually did truly change her face. <laughs> right, that's true. <laughs> and she died. Right. Yes, that's, that, that is true. That is a good point. Um, that is a good point. And, um, and so what do we do with that? Uh, you know, here's, here's, here's a, uh, actually to that, to that, let me, um, let's think about this. You brought up 5G. So are there all these concerns? Um, incorrect, all of them, right? That 5G is, it causes cancer, it spreads coronavirus, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, these are, th- these were concerns that were expressed about 4G too. I mean, they're expressed about, you know, all, uh, cell phones. Uh, remember, remember these cell phones cause brain cancer scare? Yeah. Um, that wasn't, that wasn't correct. But you can, right now I'm seeing a lot on Twitter uh, people have discovered as a way to combat the 5G thing. People have found, uh, following you know a, a kind of pessimist archive logic, they found these illustrations um, of people who uh, from from the early 1900s of people who were concerned about electricity and showing um, showing uh, electricity's uh, electric wires zapping people to death, and uh, you know the idea that. The, the, the connection that people are drawing when they're seeing these old illustrations from these old magazines uh, that were communicating a kind of fear of electricity and then the fear of 5G, and they're saying this is one and the same. And and, and interestingly, um, to your point about how sometimes it's it's correct, um, they're, they're not the same. They're, they're not the same. You you actually, sometimes the, the thing is that uh, you, you may have the technology correct. The change might be correct or not, or, or not, um, not harmful, but there's something about the context of it that you haven't fixed yet. And, and you may be placing the blame on the wrong thing. Um, so watch me now transition from electricity to the waltz. So 
electricity. Here was the problem. The problem, people didn't actually fear electricity when it was first introduced, which is fascinating because uh, it was, it's such a radical change in the, way that the, in the way that the world operates. I mean, when we think now, and James, you and I are talking, thanks to electricity, everything that we're doing right now, thanks to electricity. Um, and yet people couldn't conceive of, and I don't think even Edison uh, or, or Tesla or, or Westinghouse, uh, who were the leaders of um, uh, the electricity development, uh, were, were thinking about the ripple effects of this innovation. Here's what they were thinking. Lighting. People were using gas lighting in their homes. And that was really dangerous because if the flame went out, but the gas kept coming, you would die. And so when electricity was introduced, the way people came to understand it, it was a total bridge of familiarity like we were talking about before. The whole thing was safer lighting. Hmm. We'll bring this in. We'll light up a light bulb. You won't die of gas poisoning. And so people were actually totally into electricity. The problem was that the electric wires were being strung along the same poles where the telephone wires were. And those poles had a tendency to fall down. And so people were very used to, before the electricity wires, they were very used to these telephone wires falling down. And they would step on them and they would pick them up and they would move them. And it was no problem because you couldn't get hurt from a telephone wire. But now the electricity wires were falling and people were getting electrocuted because they couldn't tell the difference between the telephone wires and the electric wires. And so it actually was a big problem. It wasn't the electricity. It was the wires being above ground. And so eventually that's what drove electricity wires to be buried below ground. And that's what enabled electricity to really thrive. So now take that idea and let me tell you about the waltz. So in the waltz, we became popularized, uh, uh, right? It, it kind of started in noble circles in Europe, and then it expanded outwards. People uh, were people were outraged by it, absolutely outraged by the waltz. It, it involved uh, physical touching. Uh, it involved all this fast movement. And so one of the big concerns, the big things that people would say to try to halt people from dancing the waltz is that they would say that it would take literal years off of your life. That it would it would it would harm you. It was a physically harmful dance, and women in particular, they said, you're just not physically able to do the waltz. Is that because it was this like uh, an anti-exercise thing? It was like too much. Ex this was like pre the gym, so people thought exercise wasn't so good. Or, well, so it's it's interesting. No, it was it was what what you ask is a version of the thing that I I was wondering when I was talking to a dance historian about this thing because my question was right is there a logic behind this at all like where is where where, where is this coming from um why are doctors saying that dancing the waltz is 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 damaging to your physical health and I thought doctors are just being moralists and they're just trying to stop women from dancing this uh very sexualized dance I mean it's not that sexualized but it certainly was at the time um but he said, the historian that I talked to said, no, 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 actually, um, the way that they were dancing the waltz, everything around the waltz was actually harmful to health. Because here's the thing. Um, first of all, pre-ventilation. So you're in these rooms that are very hot and don't have uh, fresh air coming in. And everyone's dancing on rugs. That's where you would do the waltz on. You do it on a rug. So now you're kicking up all sorts of dust in a non-ventilated room. And if you're a woman, you're wearing these like exceptionally tight corsets where you can't really breathe that well. So yeah, 
This was actually pretty damaging to your health, but the problem wasn't the dance. The problem was everything around the dance, mm. which is another... So, so I've, I've seen versions of this, and I, and I came to realize that the pattern here is that sometimes you have to innovate on the margins. Like, like we introduce something, and it seems scary, it seems harmful, but actually maybe the thing that we've introduced is just fine. The problem is the environment in which it was introduced or some other things around it that you need to fix in order for the thing that we've introduced to actually be safe. Scooters are the same thing. So people throw these scooters. Lime throws these scooters out into into the streets in Minneapolis, and then people get on them, and then they die um, because they uh, weren't riding properly, they weren't wearing a helmet, or they crashed into a car or something. And you say, oh my God, the scooters are the problem. No, 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 the scooters aren't the problem. The problem is that people don't know how to ride the scooters. So Lime, for example, realized that the majority, like a, like a very high percentage of the scooters, uh, the, the accidents that happen on these scooters are happening on people's very first rides. So what do you do? Well, you make sure that their first ride is in a controlled educational environment. So they started hosting all of these seminars where they would teach people how to ride these scooters. And that actually dropped accident rates significantly. Innovate on the margins. The problem isn't the scooter. The problem isn't the waltz. The problem is the environment in which it was introduced. So, so there's two things there. One is, how do you know if this is internal to the invention or the problem is external to the invention. Like in the case of the waltz, uh, you know, everything around the waltz was unsafe, but the waltz itself was safe. And then, uh, I guess there's an important point you make, which is, you know, it's the title of a John Doerr, the famous venture capitalist, the title of his book, measure what matters. So, so you have to kind of, you know, proper measurement by the innovators helps communication of, you know, past the various problems. So for instance, in this 5G scare, if you're a maker of 5G, you know, getting active now and doing tests of the effect of 5G on people or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's a, I mean, it's a great question that I don't think has one simple answer. Um, I mean, obviously like where you're going with that is, I mean, communication um, and feeling like people are being brought along on the journey is exceptionally important. But how, you know, how do you know? How do you know the difference between um, the waltzes killing people and the unventilated rooms with um, terrible rugs are killing people? Um, you know, I, I mean, I think that the best thing that you can do is approach it the way that Lime did, which is to first, first of all, if you are a creator, to acknowledge a problem, right? To not bury your head in the sand. Um, uh, kind of Mark Zuckerberg style and say, I created this great thing. Uh, you know, it's like, there are no problems here. Like that's just, it's just not a helpful way of looking at things. Um, so acknowledge that you might have a problem and then dive into the data to understand where you might be able to identify the problem. I mean, like, you know, imagine the breakthrough moment that happened at Lime when they started really crunching the data and said, oh my God, most accidents are happening on the first ride. That gives us an indication of where the problem is. Yes, there is a genuine problem, but that's okay to have problems. Problems are what we always have, but we need solutions. You can't run from creating the solution. So that's if you're a creator. And then I think if you're, if you're the culture, if you're the user, then my challenge to you, and I know that this sounds kind of abstract and it's difficult, but my, my challenge to you is to not leap to terrifying conclusions. Um, to not calcify your understanding of something as inherently bad or scary. To say, you know, maybe we can have a more constructive conversation. Maybe there's a better way to understand this and, 
and do this. Because the thing is, oftentimes with these, you know, these innovations that we're talking about, I mean, we we can't imagine a world without them. The 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 story turned out well. The question was along the way, when we are part of the journey along the way of these innovations, how can we foster and have the most constructive conversations about these things so that we're not inhibiting innovation, um, so that we're not running away from it, but so that we're taking a cold, hard look at it and saying, how can this be as safe and as useful as possible. Yeah, like as and, you, you could imagine, I mean, we talked about briefly about 5G, but th this, this, I almost think you should come up with a, a name describing this phenomenon of the, the, the anti, in, because I'm not blaming anti-innovators. Like I wouldn't call them Luddites or even anti-innovators. Like their mm -hmm. reaction is a normal evolutionary reaction. Like you said, you know, incumbents, people who already were doing something that worked, their philosophy it is, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And it's right. it's unclear that horses were broke because people didn't really, because the future is uncertain. The future of a technology is uncertain, as you also mentioned. And so I wonder if there's a way to kind of describe this phenomenon coming up with a serious, like, like right now, um, you know, people are worried about self-driving trucks. Like the, and the big fear is, you know, 3 million people, truck drivers will lose their jobs and the economy will slip into anarchy. And of yeah. course now, uh, automation is getting a little bit more in favor because of how it could deal with things like this pandemic. But like in a situation like that or 5G, how would you approach communicating to people uh, to overcome their pessimism? So here's, here's something that I've seen work throughout time. Um, I think that you need to keep in mind that loss is easier to see than gain. Mm. People immediately see loss. They understand And they're afraid loss. of it. And they're afraid of it. And, and you know, and and rightly so in right. many cases. You're you're afraid of the loss of your job or the loss of your familiar lifestyle or just the loss of something that you liked. Um and if it's and if it's going to disappear, you don't um you don't like that. And so you want to push back against it. Now, the thing that we see over and over again, I mean, this is this is the, the 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 literal history of innovation and progress globally is that new things create more new things in a way that is logical when you look back on it. There's a kind of zigzag logic to it. You you created this, which created this, which created this, which created this, right? I mean, you could, you know, you you could you could do it all the way back to the invention of the, you know, the invention of the plow. Uh, which um, which which farmers did not like. Um, the invention of the plow has led to you and I talking together, right? Because because um, because the plow allowed for more efficient farming, which meant that people didn't have to spend all their day farming, which meant that there was um, uh, you know kind of a surplus labor and also uh, a, a more money to spend, which created uh, different economies and different industries, and um, a, you know a a, a, a uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? A kind of recreational um, uh, experiences, and now here you and I are talking about a, talking on a podcast instead of farming the land. So, um, so these are the zigzag logic of the world, and um, and it's really, really hard to see that stuff. Right. It, it's the it's the living with uncertainty we started with, which which you need to do. You need there's that yeah. there's always that that river of uncertainty you need to wade through to get to the other side. Boom. Poetic description. <laughs> it was very nice. And so and so the question is, I think for for innovator, how can you 
how can you communicate the gain? How can you show people the gain instead of saying, trust us, there is gain? I mean, that's, that's one of the things that I think is happening with 5G right now is um, people hear faster internet and it's like, oh, okay, but you know what? For my day-to-day experience, what do I need faster internet for? I mean, you know, speaking as somebody who, like, I, I, I mean, I watch Netflix, it works. What am I going to watch? Two Netflixes at the same time? What are you even talking about right now? Why do I need this? This sounds scary. Why are we taking this risk? And, um, and so, uh, you know, like, you could have all the logical conversations in the world about how the kind of whatever they're called, millimeter waves that come out of 5G or like can't actually penetrate the skin. But people, that's too abstract. For somebody who's, who's, predicated on or somebody who's who's um who, who's likely to be fearing this kind of stuff is not going to have a logical conversation with you about micro uh, millimeter waves but uh what they might be interested in is some kind of amazing new gain some value that they're going to get out of this some way in which this is going to transform their their lives for the better and what exactly is that going to be um I mean, it's, you know, it's, I, 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 this is not my area of expertise, so I don't know, but I'll tell you, actually, James, this is, this is like, this is the goofiest possible explanation, but just for, for whatever the hell it's worth. Um, I, I'm actually, I just wrote this in last night to the script for the next episode of Pessimist Archive. So here's like a little preview. So I was talking to this guy, um, Alex Stapp. He's the director of technology policy at the Progressive Policy Institute. And I was asking him what kind of innovations he's, predicting to come out of the um, coronavirus. Uh, And one of them, he said, is, well, think about how, think about the, the, sudden new load that is being put on digital infrastructure, Uh, right? We are all conducting, conducting our lives right now through digital infrastructure. And so that actually creates more incentive than there was before to invest in and innovate in digital infrastructure, faster and better cloud computing and accelerating of 5G rollout and then whatever comes next. I mean, this stuff, of course, there's some. there's always been some incentive to invest in this stuff uh, and Google and Amazon and, and giants like that have been, have been doing it, but there is a different kind of incentive happening now and that could fuel innovation there. And so now I said, oh, I, when he was telling me about that, about, digital, about the digital infrastructure, I said, you know what this makes me think of, Alec? I said, a year or so ago, I was, uh, it was a summer and I was in my Brooklyn apartment and this thing that happens to me every single summer was happening, which is that a mosquito had gotten into the room and I'm laying in bed, I'm trying to fall asleep and the thing goes, zip, right? Like right up to your head. You know, like everybody's had that experience. You just like whack it and you can't find it. And now there is a mosquito somewhere in your room. You cannot find it. You you just know that you're going to lay there and become its meal for the next couple hours. Right. And I thought, I thought a year ago, wouldn't it be awesome if I was able to take out my cell phone and open up an app called Mosquito Killer and scan the room and it would by knowing what a mosquito looks like and maybe recognizing its flight patterns, immediately say the mosquito's over there. So I could go and I could kill the mosquito. And so I emailed this idea to a friend of mine who works in tech. He's currently at Lyft. And I said, is this possible? And he said, no, for two reasons. One, camera technology isn't there yet. But two, data processing. Like this just requires so much data processing and um, and like kind of machine reading um, that we don't have the capability to do it anymore. So now I told Alec this. I said, are you talking about a innovation in digital infrastructure 
such that this crazy idea that I have to kill a mosquito in my room could be possible. And he said, yes, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Like, this is exactly the kind of thing that could be processed with better data. And so 10 years from now, I could kill every mosquito in my room thanks to coronavirus and 5G. Now, that's a wild leap. That's a zigzag logic that makes no sense uh, until you've lived through it. But can the people who are introducing radical new things that feel like they could be scary come along on a journey of innovation with the people who are receiving it so that it's not just these abstract things so that the people are, who are like installing these towers in towns that are now freaking out about them and like burning them down, which is just totally crazy. Instead of just installing it and making it feel like a kind of government intrusion on their lives is able to have a nationwide or global conversation where they're really able to show and display and maybe even deliver some initial values so that people say, Oh, I understand how this is going to change my life for the better. I see it. I'm not just seeing the loss or the potential loss or the imagined loss, because with 5G, it's all imagined loss. But instead, I'm seeing the gain. The more you can get people to see the gain, the more they will come along with you. What if, like, let's take uh, automation and truck drivers. How would you explain to a truck driver who's been hearing it from every source of society that, hey, you're, you're going to lose your job once they automate truck driving and, 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 you know, I could see a thread out of this, but just, just first time thinking about this, what would you, how would you start to formulate a story you would tell the truck drivers that, Hey, this is going to actually improve your life instead of just uh, causing you to lose your career. Right. It's a, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think that if I had the perfect answer to that, I could, I could, you know, run for, for public <laughs> office. Um, but, um, but we, here's where, here's where I would start as, um, as a guy who's just a guy who makes a podcast. Um, um, first I would, I would want to be thinking, um, uh, about what else these people can do so that they're not seeing a gap and no idea what's on the other side of that gap. Mm. How can I transition truck drivers and their skill sets into something that either is still useful within this industry or into some kind of adjacent related industry? Um, I, I, you know, an, another thing that I might be thinking about is, um, can we, instead of talking about how automated driving is going to take over everything all at once, which I, I just frankly don't think is going to happen and I think has been a, uh, a, a not constructive way of introducing this technology to the world. I, I, I would have started smaller. I would have started with very limited use cases uh, in, the way that the, uh, in the way that the introduction of electricity was a very limited use case. It was just about lighting. People liked that. Right? I mean, if they understood the full power of electricity, I think they would have all been freaking out, but they weren't because they saw it as a limited use case. And this could be a very, you know, I, I, could, I could absolutely see how automated cars, automated, you know, auto-driving cars um, have a limited use case right now. They could, they could move people um, around an uh, enclosed campus. Uh, you know, uh, they can move people um, um, around, a, you know, kind of um, elder living facilities, some, something like that. Um, these kinds of things where you introduce them you, and, and you say, this is what it's for. Uh, like, this is where it is. It's not replacing jobs. It's actually improving lives. And now, then we have a slower, more logical rollout of this technology because, frankly, you know, to introduce something and say, this is going to change the world and everything that you know is going to be different because of this thing is just is so not constructive and also just not true. 
Right. Uh, it's just not. I, I mean, it's just not the way that this stuff is going to be experienced. And so why even, why screw everybody up uh, and, and create all this resistance to your to your innovation um, before you've actually figured out what it's for? Right. So in, th- in this case, it might be that the pessimism um, takes two or three steps too fast and comes up with one possibility that's a worst case scenario rather than saying, hey, let's just see how it goes as it's rolled out. Because like you said, with every great technology, there's there's going to be anywhere from a five to 50 year rollout. And they always say, oh yeah. no, the, the, the rate of change is faster and faster. That is not necessarily true, depending on what the changes that you're talking about. But I, I, I want to hit some of these other ones because some of these that you've talked about in the Pessimist Archive are fascinating to me. Like, mirrors like i would think people would have loved mirrors like for the first time in their life they get to see what they look like accurately yes isn't that amazing i mean imagine seeing yourself for the first time ever i guess how do people see each other before like in through water i guess there was some kinds of glass that were probably more reflective than others yeah you could see yourself through water there were these things called like uh, i think they're called obelisks um basically shiny rock um, so you can see the outline of yourself, but these are all very small. I mean, I mean, this goes back. I mean, you know, they're they found um, they found what are really kind of primitive stone mirrors in, uh, in in excavation sites in Turkey, going back thousands of years. People have always wanted to see themselves, but the best they could manage was getting a kind of dim reflection, and and it's small, and you got to be up close, so it doesn't really give you a full sense of what you look like. Um, it's just you know, it's like it's like trying to understand what you look like by looking at the reflection in your glasses. Uh, it just doesn't really work, yeah. um, and. Um, and then, uh, and then the mirror became around. I think it was the 1400s when the Italians figured out how to make mirrors, um, you know, better mirrors, mirrors that are somewhat similar to what we know now, um, a kind of long reflective surface. And they kept it a they kept it a secret because they didn't want. Um, they didn't want to lose the business. They didn't want other people to know how to do it. And so that set off this fascinating, crazy thing where um, where like other European states were kidnapping like mirror makers or mirror makers were defecting to other countries and then being assassinated. It's crazy. I don't know how a movie about this uh, mirror war hasn't been made yet. Um, but the big turn comes in the... Um, in the uh, I believe, 18, mid-1800s in America. I could have the date wrong. Um, when the technology is finally developed so that mass manufactured inexpensive mirrors can be created for anybody. And at that point, everybody starts walking around with a little pocket mirror and they have mirrors in their homes and they put mirrors in the elevators and there are mirrors everywhere. And now what you have is pretty much exactly the kind of thing that you get today with people bitching about people taking selfies and posting them on social media right you they you see they see a world in which people have become completely self-obsessed they can't do anything other than look at themselves and fix themselves and fuss over themselves and people hate that they hate to see it and that you know, it, it, like it feels at once surprising, and then you think about how it connects to the way that we still do this with the selfie, and you think, oh well, I guess maybe not that surprising. But the thing that was really interesting to me was that I I I interviewed for that episode these two uh, academics from uh, Weber State University who wrote a book called "Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid," which I I 
highly recommend. Um, Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid is an ex- an explore, a historical exploration of emotion. So how did we express or feel different emotions throughout time and history, and how does that inform what we understand of that emotion today? So when we're talking about vanity, which is what we're talking about with the objections over the selfie, we it's important to look back at the history of vanity because the introduction of the mirror actually comes during an evolution that we are we were all going through over what vanity is. Because if you if you rewind back to a kind of very religious time in in America, you know, get get back to the 1700s, what you see is preachers who are constantly constantly hammering home that vanity is a sin. Not just a sin, it's actually a deadly sin. It's one of the deadly sins. And that you should not be focused on yourself at all. You should always be focused on your community and God. And that um, to look at yourself and to consider yourself to be worth considering is to uh, elevate yourself above your community and God. And that's a sin. So then that idea starts getting slowly chipped away, or rather new innovations come and, and start to challenge people's uh, kind of programming about vanity in this really interesting way. So the first one wasn't the mirror. The first one was actually the um, the postal service. So once people were able to cheaply write letters to each other, I mean, right before that, it was it was immensely expensive to send a letter from one person to another. But then, you know, you have the kind of early version of the postal service. And now I can, I can, I'm in Colorado, I can write a letter, I can put it in the mailbox and it arrives, you know, at your home, James, in, in not that much time. Um, truly amazing. And e- email and, even better, but yes. Right, but back then. And so here's the question. If you have come up in a world in which thinking about and talking about yourself is sinful, what the hell do you write about in a letter? Like, what do you write about? Uh, you know, I mean, your people are writing to their friends. They're writing to their um, um, to their family. Uh, the postal service is 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 rising at a time in which people are really for the first time starting to move around the country a little bit more. So now you might have family members in different states. And they may never see each other in person again, but now they have the ability to write. What are they supposed to write to each other about? And so um, a national conversation begins and a shift in the idea of what vanity is begins. Because now they say, you know what? It is okay to write about yourself. It is a gift to other people to tell them that you're okay and that you're well and that you're thinking about them. And so the idea of what vanity is gets revised in this way that I think keeps happening over and over again because it happens in the letter writing and then it happens in mirrors where we have this conversation and we say, you know what, then actually it's, it's not so bad to care about how you look. That's not so bad. In fact, the opposite is now true. You, now like, you tell me. <laughs> right, like now, right, you, you think there's a shift that's happening where, where you go from caring about how you look is bad to not caring how you look caring about how you look is bad, right? This is a shift that happens. And we keep revising the idea of what vanity is so that we define it away from ourselves. So that before, oh, you know, anybody who thinks of themselves as vain, oh, wait a second, but I want to write a letter and I want to write about myself. I've been told that's okay. Well, then I guess that's not vanity. Something else must be vanity. And we keep doing that. And so now we're kind of doing it 
I think in, in we did it in mirrors. There was you know there was a kind of eventual mass um, acceptance of mirrors. Uh, then we did it in photographs. Well, taking a photograph of yourself and sending it to somebody is vain. No, 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 no. It's not vain. It's actually a gift to show someone that you're doing well. And in fact, for family members who will never see you in person again, they want that photo of you. It's not vain to take the photo of you. This is the conversation that was happening. So then now we're doing it with selfies and we'll do it with something else. You know, eventually uh, everyone who complained about selfies will start taking selfies. They already have. They're putting it on Instagram. And then they'll define themselves as... as um, not part of that vanity problem. And we'll move on to some other way in which we're celebrating ourselves. And, and, you know, this happens so often throughout history that I think it's worth stepping back and saying, you know what, why don't we just stop it and accept that it's okay to like ourselves and to celebrate ourselves. And when we celebrate ourselves, we celebrate others as well. There's nothing wrong with thinking of ourselves as special. I don't know why that's a problem. And let's find new ways to, to articulate that and to share the things that we're experiencing and thinking with others because that's what community is. So let's not demonize that. Well, you know, I think what's fascinating is, is you know, there, there's kind of the core story here about uh, mirrors leading to this nationwide discussion of the role of vanity versus the role of just thinking about community and God. And by the way, that skepticism, it's almost like we can make fun of it now. Like, huh, they were thinking you should focus on God more than uh, how you look. And you, it would almost, it's almost seems laughable. And yet that skepticism was legit also. Like if you truly believed, like, look, the highest form of good is, you know, sacrifice in the name of the Lord, then yeah, looking at mirrors might be, might be, it's worthy being skeptical of it. And, you know, yeah. elevators, if they were constantly guarded by, you know, the elevator guy, maybe there would be murders. Like it's healthy to kind of have these premises and then and then figure out, like you were saying, in, in terms of small rollouts, figuring out ways to test these premises in almost a scientific manner. And so there's there's a couple of things that that I learned from this whole archive of podcasts and your and your view of exploring pessimism. A, it's kind of like a history of innovation. So some massive problem is solved, but it's not like then all of a sudden the world gets better. Let's see what happens at all these critical points where society is about to change. There's, there's a lot of opinions that, that we kind of take for granted later and there's skepticism. And then there's techniques for commuting, communicating past the skepticism, which ultimately, by the way, leads to the rise of I just keep thinking of Don Draper here. Like it leads to the rise of the advertising agency and the advertising business. They're the yeah. ones who say, okay, you know, let's take cigarettes and put a guy on a horse and show that, Hey, this is this is something familiar. Let's attach some familiar message to some product. Now that might not always be positive. That might not always be positive, but it, it is a method that is used now as, as, as uh, you know, common, you know, it's a common thing to do when there's something new. And then, and then also your, your, your ar archive, your, your pessimist archive shows how things have unexpected consequences that could be very positive. Like you mentioned with electricity, how, you know, ultimately it was just used for the light, but then ultimately, of course, now it powers everything in our lives. The same thing is true of computers. Everyone thought it was just going to be these huge machines that would, you know, add up numbers really fast. And now we're using it, you know, to adjust our thermo thermometers. We're using it to make these podcasts. We're using it for everything, essentially. And 
you know, you can look at that so many instances in history, but you know, and I love one, uh, description of the development of computing. It started off with the development of stores that had windows allowed for everyday people to kind of window shop, which led to dresses being made for the average window shopper who weren't necessarily as uh, well off as the aristocracy, which led to the invention of the sewing loom, which ultimately triggered the technology that led to Charles Babbage in the early 1800s, making a kind of an, a, an attempt with his assistant Ada Lovelace at making a computer, which ultimately did lead to the modern computer and so on. Like we connect the dots on these things that people were first resistant to is, is very beautiful actually. And yeah, it, it, you know, and I think, I think looking at it from the, the filter, from the frame that you did of, Hey, let's look at this through a history of pessimism on comic books, mirrors, elevators, air conditioning, and on and on. Like you have, and the, the waltz, which, which totally surprised me is just fascinating. Like, well, what's your next episode going to be about? Well, you know, now that we're in the, thanks for all that. Yeah. I, and I could totally agree. I mean, it, it's just the, the fascinating of the, the thing, the, the big takeaway from, from that whole, you know, that whole kind of um, thread that you just gave there is, is, is that um, progress happens, right? Like let's, we can, we can, we can trust in, in some way in the, in the process of progress and it's exciting and you don't know where it's going to go. And, and, the, you know, like, I think the big question is uh, for every individual is like, how, how much do you want to be a part of it? Or how much do you want to try to hide from it? But you can't avoid it because it, because change, is not it changes it's, it's unavoidable it's a, it's the greatest opportunity you never asked for and so uh you know how, how do you how do you want to fit into it um so the next episode so i now i i wanted to because we're in this world in which everybody's thinking about coronavirus all the time i wanted to uh i wanted to explore um this subject from a very kind of current perspective and so i wanted the the next episode i wanted to know what good comes out of bad um, like how can we, how can we see and maybe anticipate our own evolution based on looking at how other, uh, terrible things led to, led to great things. And so the, like the nuclear, that nuclear I, energy is an example. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, that's right. Um, and so is the black death, which is what I, which is what I kick off with. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, quick, quick preview. Um, one of the things that the black death gave us was the um, employment contract, the idea of an employer and an employee relationship. How did that happen? Well, in the 1300s, Europe was an agricultural society that was dominated by a lord and serf system, and the serf was functionally owned by the lord. Um, they were a slave. They were a slave by a slightly different name. And um, nobody thought otherwise because the... Um, also, there was a belief that uh, everything that happened had been ordained by God. So if you were a lord, that's because God wanted you to be a lord. And if you were a serf, that's because God wanted you to be a serf. And then the Black Death comes, and it wipes out upwards of 60% of all Europe. And so the lords that survive after this, of course, now need to get back to business. And they don't have many serfs anymore. In fact, there aren't that many serfs anymore. But the ones that are available are now in demand. 
Now they kind of have a choice about who they want to work for, and they can start to ascribe some value to their work because why would they choose one over the other? Well, I guess it was because they would be treated better or they would be paid. And some serfs said, you know what? Screw this. I'm not going back to the land at all. I'm going to become a merchant and I'm going to sell textiles or spices or something. And so this gave us the very beginning of the concept of an employer and an employee. And it also gave us the beginning of the merchant class. So when you think about the foundation of the the economy as we understand it today, it actually comes out of the Black Death. And so how do we wrestle with, and this is the thing that I find really interesting, how do we wrestle with the good that comes from terrible? Because this is ultimately the story of innovation. I mean, the Black Death and coronavirus to, to you know a lesser but still significant extent is a story of something new and disruptive coming along, it causing pain, but in the end causing a lot of uh, innovation and progress. And that's, you know, that's the story of the elevator too. It's the story of everything that's new. Is that There's some, some harm and there's some downside, but um, in understanding the upside and, and being able to uh, embrace and maximize it and make it as safe as possible and expand access to it as much as possible, we create greatness. And so how are we to think of that? Tell, tell me, tell me, uh, and you have so many fast, you have everything from like teddy bears to whatever. Like I yeah. can't even believe teddy bears were considered bad. So this is why, again, look, listening to any of these podcasts in the, in the pessimist archive, it's not just about teddy bears. It's like a, a, an interesting exploration through history. That's outside of the standard chronology of facts and, and important events that happens as we're growing up there. People what I appreciate when I'm listening to podcasts like these is that there's there are vastly different ways to view history and and there are so many lessons to take, not from just from the history itself, but how we look at it. But tell me about the pinball machine. Like what <laughs> like in and, and you know, you start off with the the mayor of New York, I guess in the forties, like yeah, LaGuardia. bashing bashing, yeah, Fierro LaGuardia bashing pinball machines with a hammer. What's the deal? Oh, I love right. pinball as a kid. I know. I love pinball as a kid too. I I I love pinball as an adult. Um, so pin, the, the story of pinball is interesting because it's a story. It's really a story of um, it's a story of association, which is a problem that we make as well. Which is that something new becomes associated with something bad, and therefore we believe that the thing itself, the new thing itself, is bad. So um, pinball is introduced, and 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 by the way, pinball originally didn't have flippers. Um, which is an important uh. thing to know because, uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to it in a second. So pinball is introduced. It originally is kind of like um, pl- Plinko or pl- pl- Plink, whatever that game is where you just kind of drop something and it bounces yeah, around and it lands. It's Pachinko. And um, it's sort of a version of that. It's a game of, it's a game of chance. And uh, it gets placed uh, in stores and uh, places where kids go. And it, becomes quickly adopted by the mob. Um, But it's not known as the mob back then. They're all kind of these local rackets, these little rackets, uh, local criminal rackets. And no, they would do the thing that we we associate with the mob now, which is um, they would go in and they would like rough off a shopkeeper and they'd say, you're giving me a cut of this thing or I'm going to... And so they were doing that with pinball because it was a thing that people liked to 
to pay to play. And so the mob would come in and they would, um, they would go to a store and they say, we're putting a pinball machine in and we're taking all the money or whatever. And, um, they're actually like, they're like movies where you can find scenes of this. Uh, it's so funny. And, um, and so once the, uh, once the, local rackets start to become more organized into what is known as organized crime. And then the Kefauver committee come, comes together. And I believe the fifties to, um, to look at, uh, the rise of the, uh, the mob, um, people start to associate pinball with the mob and therefore pinball with, um, gambling and organized crime. And so they start to see pinball as not just a, not just a, a thing that got caught up in this mess, but as a thing that actually encourages the problem that they're seeing. So now they believe that pinball is addictive and pinball will make children into derelicts. And then, just to add more terrible association to it, we move from uh, freak out over the mob to freak out over juvenile delinquency, which was a big scare in the 1950s, the 1950s juvenile delinquency scare, where people were worried that children were just turning into maniacs and going out and like murdering people. And, uh, and so what were they doing? Well, they were playing pinball, right? Every radical, uh, rebellious kid becomes associated with pinball. I mean, that's like why the Fonz plays pinball. That's a that's a that's a that's an echo of that. And uh, and so this leads to governments and moralists taking it out on pinball because it's a very easily accessible, um, easily identifiable villain. So LaGuardia rounds up every pinball machine in the city and starts bashing them with hammers in front of the press. Um, you've got uh, you know you've got these. Um, these organizations that used to be committed to uh, rounding up and and you know breaking bottles of alcohol during prohibition, who now need something else to uh, to to go after, and so they pick up pinball, and and uh, so these kind of church groups and and um, uh, you know kind of moralistic women's organizations start going after pinball, and um, and the big. The, the big turning point is a national conversation, which I think, I think lands in court, although I, I forget the details of it. And it's a question, this goes back to the flipper, because at this point, the flipper has been introduced by, by the pinball manufacturers. And the reason the flipper is introduced is to answer the question, is pinball a game of skill or a game of chance? Because if it's a game of chance, then it's gambling. But if it's a game of skill, then it's a game. And we can start to excuse it from all this stuff and say, no, 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 this is, you know, as long as people are doing this, uh, you know, uh, uh, away from the mob, um, then it's, um, it's just a game of, it's just a game of skill. And the thing that I found really interesting about that, I mean, ultimately, you know, where it went, pinball became considered a game of skill. Um, it was eventually allowed back. Uh, everyone moved on. The mob stopped kind of focusing on pinball and, um, and it eventually became known as a children's game. But the thing that I found so interesting about that debate was how arbitrary we decide what is a um, forbidden game of chance um, and what is something that can be embraced by our society as something that's not dangerous, right? Like what is what on earth really is the difference between um, betting on horses and buying stocks? Like, like you know, one is, one is like... Um, highly regulated and illegal in, in, in many states. And the other thing is just something that every business person does. What, like, wh why is that? Why is the, you know, the lottery used to be a thing that, um, 
was kind of created locally. Might have even been a mob thing. I can't remember. It was created and operated locally. And uh, uh, yeah, it was no a mob government. thing. It was like uh, playing the numbers. Yeah, playing the numbers. That's right. That's right. So it was a mob thing. And then eventually the government came along and it was like, that's really bad. You shouldn't be doing that. Okay, actually, now we have a lottery and you can pay us. And now it's just fine. But like, you know, the, the idea of what is um, what is acceptable uh, is, is often so... Um, dependent upon what it's associated with, and um, and and I think that's what the story mm. of pinball is. I think that's a very powerful thing too, because you know a lot of this message is you know like you said earlier about the elevator having a female voice. You know, bridge bridge that gap of uncertainty with familiarity, and it's the same thing here. Bridge that gap of innovation with you know um, you know something we're comfortable with. What what was the exact phrase you just used? Um, build a bridge of familiarity? No, but, but uh, just now about, you know, something, bridge it to something we're comfortable with. Oh, or, man, I, we'll have to go, but we got to go back to the tape. I was yeah. just rolling. I was, that was, that was not a pre-programmed thing. No, I um, liked it, but then I started yeah. writing it down and I, I, I forgot. <laughs> it's good. Uh, we have it on tape. So, so, you know, so it's, it's interesting. Like I, I, you know, just related to that, I almost think you should do something on prediction markets because, you know, those are those markets where you can bet on real world events like will Trump win the election or not you can bet as if it's shares like a stock market and you make an interesting point what is the difference between gambling and the stock market and in, in many ways there's no difference but but gambling itself in in your in your point earlier about how pos how negative things can lead to something positive the gambling led to the whole entire development of the field of statistics which has become so amazingly mm. valuable like like right now you can't approve medicine or a drug without massive amounts of statistical work being done on it. Yeah. So, so like gambling itself led to modern medicine. Yeah, that's right. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. That's, I love the whole connecting the dots thing. I mean, I'm curious because again, your, your podcast is a history podcast. It's a, it's a communication podcast because communicating difficult, complicated, new innovations is, is a, oh, has always been a challenge to society as exemplified just by the hand-washing example where the, the guy died in, in shame. And, uh, you know, also it's, it's this connect the dots thing where it, it just gives you a different way of thinking about things. I'm interested in why you called it the pessimist archive. So I actually didn't come up with the term Pessimist Archive. Uh, the Pessimist Archive was born out of a Twitter feed by a guy named Louis Anslow, who um, is British, uh, and I, don't, I didn't know him. And I but I've been fascinated with this subject and have written about it a lot. And so years ago, I found his, I found his Twitter feed at Pessimist Arc. And, um, and I, I, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. Have you ever come across something and you're like, I made this, but I didn't make it, right? Like, it looks like, it feels like the product of me it's exactly the thing that I'm interested in, but it wasn't me. I didn't make it. Somebody else made it. Uh, it was so weird. And so I reached out to him and I was like, listen, I love this. I also have written quite a lot about this. And if you are interested in working together, let's find a way. And so we started talking and we decided to, you know, launch a podcast, which I really wanted to do. And so, um, so now I do the podcast and he does social and we, we kind of operate the brand together. But That's I a, love- what, What's yeah. his name? I'm going to check out his Twitter feed. Oh yeah. His name is Louis- Anslow. So it's L-O-U-I-S Anslow, A-N-S-L-O-W. Great. Um, and you know, the idea is it's, I mean, it's a fun, I love the name though. It is misleading because people think that it's pessimistic. It's not, it is an archive of pessimism. It's actually a very optimistic 
show and and vision. I mean, I am a, I am a real optimist uh, about the world, and um, and I think that it's helpful to look back and and see pessimism together, so that you can see the full kind of scope of it and um, and understand the patterns of it. Uh, and I think that once you do, you become more optimistic too. Well, uh, Jason, I hope you can come on. I, I love this episode so much, and and I feel we've covered only the drop in the bucket of all these amazing innovations, the pessimism that resulted in the ways of communicating through that pessimism, and then the connect the dots outcomes of what happened. I hope you could come on again, you know, in a couple of months, and we go over another bunch of pessimistic topics because there's so much to learn from each case. Oh man, count me in any time. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, you know, James, I love the way that you think about this stuff too. So just wrapping on this is super fun. And, um, uh, and there's so much, there's just so much more to say. So, um, let's, yeah, let's, let's do it. Hopefully in a few months we'll be uh, in the same city again, though. Who knows? Yeah, no, that would be great. And, and again, I think this leads to more than just knowledge, but even a way of living your life, understanding, you know, the, the, the benefits of turning, you know, skepticism into communication, into understanding, into living with uncertainty. There's so many life lessons that can be learned from this topic in addition to just these fascinating angles on history. Like I always like uh, history, which is takes a different filter. So in school, we kind of learn history from, from the point of view of, uh, you know, history of the world in 10,000 years. So you look at every year and this is what happened. These empires were built. These empires ended. Here's who the president was. This is the wars that fought. Now on to the next year. Right. So we, we that's the filter we look look at history in as a chronology. But I like things like, you know, there's like a book, um, History of the World in Six Glasses. So it looks at mm. how how the derivation of clean water, then coffee, then tea, then beer, then wine, then liquor, just those six the, the kind of invention of those six drinks Great. altered the course of history specific, not just accidentally. It wasn't just like, oh, this happened at the same time as tea, but, but like, like hard liquor was created so people could go on long voyages without ruining, you know, the liquor. It was, it was <laughs> able to store more easily. So that would enable people to go to America and discover America. Yeah. And so, so it's just looking at things through a different lens is is so fascinating or or you know looking at a history of the world through you know the greatest works of art or you know i'm just imagining like different ways to you know look at things look, looking at uh uh the game of tennis through you know five amazing you know serves or whatever yeah uh, it's just just an interesting prism of of looking at at life and there's so much to be gained from from looking at these alternative views of history so yes uh, you're welcome back anytime, but definitely in the next month or so, let's let's get together again and go over some of these others and, and some of the other le valuable lessons that you've learned and how they could be applied now to, to live a better life. But Jason Pfeiffer, also, you know, editor-in-chief of uh, uh, Entrepreneur Magazine, uh, one of the, one of my favorite business magazines, maybe Thank my, you. actually my favorite business magazine, and also a uh, uh, great podcast with Nicole Lapin, um, and I've been on it, and now I'm just the name's slipping me. What's the name of the podcast? <laughs> it's, it's called Hush Money. Yes, Hush Money. You, you I, have been on Hush Money, um, and, um, and we I've been on Hush again. Money, and, and you guys, you guys again. And it's another thing where I want you to come back on. 
we we came back on you came on my podcast and we you me and Nicole debated some of the different aspects of hush money. I went on hush money right before the lockdown to talk about taxes. It's almost yeah. it's almost even out of date when it came out. Yeah, like, like everything. Um, but uh, looking forward to having you on again for that. And uh, good luck for the rest of this lockdown. And thanks once again, Jason, for coming on the podcast. Oh, hey, thanks, James. I really appreciate it. Always great chatting with you. And um, let's talk soon. Thank you.